Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Whatever the thing is, if you love doing it, if you're really passionate about doing it, you do it. It shouldn't matter what other people think. And, you know, hopefully that will guide you to where you're supposed to be. There's no map or, like, clear path to how anyone gets to any point in their career. The way I got to SNL is way different than the way someone else got to SNL. Um, But, you know, if you just keep following the passion and keep following what you believe in and not what other people are telling you what you should believe in, then I think you'll get there. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard live from the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, Canada. Every year we come here. I love it. It's an amazing experience. If you've never been, you have to come. It's an incredible resource for all kinds of comedy in the world. And it's just an extraordinary event. So many great shows. And as always, I like to come up here. And in my spare time, I love to sit down with some of the greatest comedians and comedy artists in the world and today is no exception very very excited about this before i get started i just want to thank you guys so much for giving me the license and the opportunity to be able to do this podcast and be able to bring it to you it brings me great joy and so many people have come up to me unsolicited stop me here It's so humbling to know when you decide to do something that maybe a lot of people have told you not to do and you do it anyway because you believe in it and you believe what it stands for and you want to be of assistance and you want to be a productive member of society and do something that can help people when you didn't have the access to that kind of help when you were coming up and again I will never stop saying it I am so so grateful and so 
as I always do in every podcast, when I look at my guest, I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to think or how I'm going to present things. But when I look at uh, Sashir Zameda, I really have a lot of powerful feelings and I want to share them with you. One of the things I notice about her is that she has such poise and such power and such extraordinary charisma and such talent from what I've seen her do. Somebody who has experienced the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. But yet when she walked in here today, just this incredible positive energy and belief and excitement and confidence of what the future will bring. And if ever I see that, every time I see that, I really truly believe that you can be in a position to win all the time. I mean, we're talking about somebody who got a dream job on Saturday Night Live, yet before that auditioned many, many times and didn't get it. And finally got her dream to be on one of the greatest shows in the history of television. Yet, be careful what you wish for because things don't always go the way you want them to. And regardless of whether you feel it's your part or their part or a combination of both, you have to figure out how to navigate in that world and try to do the best you can to succeed and one of the things I respect about Sashir is that when she realized that things weren't working the way she wanted them to she made efforts to make things better she did what she could to try to make her situation as positive as possible in a job that she was looking so forward to and when she felt that she had exhausted those resources in her mind and things still weren't going the way she wanted them to, she made a decision to walk away. And I think it's an amazing thing when anybody fights hard to get what they want and they get it and they go through obstacles and they keep fighting and they persevere, and they overcome the obstacles to get where they want to go. But there's something to be said for somebody who analyzes themselves as a person, analyzes where they are in the workplace and the job they're at, and actually comes to the conclusion, along with the people who they work with, that maybe, just maybe, I can go on from here and I can work in the type of job that's better suited to my temperament, my personality, my skill set, and I will thrive in the future and so will my employer. And that takes a really special person to have that kind of feeling and that kind of knowledge within yourself and that kind of confidence. It's the kind of confidence that Dave Chappelle had at Comedy Central 
when he walked away from $50 million and everybody looked at him and thought, why is this guy doing this? Well, I can't speak for Dave directly, but I would imagine it was because he felt that he would be better off in the future doing things a different way. No matter how long or how much time it took, he felt in his heart that it would be in his best interest if he wasn't at Comedy Central anymore. And the people at Comedy Central, even though they were torn and they didn't want to see it happen, they had to believe in their hearts as a company that they could go forward with a directive and shows that could take their network to the next level as well. And both of them use what they had to take things to a new stratosphere. When I look at Sashir Zameda, I say to myself what I want to share with you. If you can figure out a way to fight hard for what you want, get to where you want, and if you're in a position where, let's say, things don't go the way you want them to go, and you've made the effort to address things and they still don't go the way you want them to go, don't be afraid to take your ball and go home because you'll realize in the future that maybe you'll be better off, you'll find the next thing that'll be great for your career, and that company will find the next thing that will help them get to the next level. And it will be a meaningful experience for both, even if it was painful. And if you can figure out how to do that, I can guarantee you, you have a great possibility of having the kind of career that Sashir Zameda has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. You see something that's so great and it's so wonderful and it's like, I'm going to take a class. And could you give me a brochure? How much is the class? $375 for how many days? Okay. And then when I finish this, what happens? 450 for the next thing that I got to And so in order to keep going... You're working within a business. Now, I know it could be argued, well, college costs money. You want to get a great education, you got to pay for it. But you can't get to where you want to go in UCB or the Groundlings without money. And that's the sad reality of what it's like. You can be... I mean, there's so many people who are hugely successful in business that never went to college. But if you want to compete in that world and you're not a part of one of those places or in the stand-up world, you're like a dead person walking. Yeah. And when you go to New York, it's so hard to make it. I mean, it's just the shittiest apartment is beyond your means mm -hmm. and so how did you figure out a way to make it well one i got 
into a car accident right before I moved to New York and got some settlement money. So I had some money to move with. And then I was in a shitty apartment in Greenpoint for four years that had no window in my bedroom, mice, roaches, the ceiling fell in at one point in time. It was just like <laughs> comically bad. And looking back, I'm like, I can't believe I did that for four years. But how much was that a month? It started off with five seventy five. Were you alone or with roommates? I was with uh, three to four other roommates <laughs> at any time. And how many bedrooms were in the place? There were four, technically, really? but three did not have windows and probably weren't legally supposed to be <laughs> bedrooms. Um, but yeah, there was like a big bedroom at the end of the hall that had two windows that were, that were nice and had sunlight. And then <laughs> three other ones that were oddly shaped that we filled with other comedians. It was like a comedy house. And it was a nice house. I like, I do remember that time fondly. It was like fun to be there and like rehearse improv in my living room and like sing songs and like workshop jokes with other comedians there. But also, you know, uh, our landlord was a bully and a slumlord and (laughs) I would hear mice underneath my bed sometimes. And it was just, you know, not the best. Um, so you're, so you're, you start your first improv experience at UCB. Mm-hmm. You pay your three fifty or your three seventy five or whatever it is. You do the course, and after it's all over, obviously there were other people in the course with you. Yeah, and you of all people, I think, have a great understanding of where you stand and where other people stand. So as the week was ending, were you saying to yourself, I'm so much better than these people? Or was there one person there that was like, God, I'm never going to be as good as that guy? It was a mix because some people who were starting, especially the first class, especially 101, where it's like some business people who want to learn how to do public speaking, which I still don't understand why people take improv for public speaking. But I mean, I guess it loosens you up. But um you know, you don't have to learn Harold to do that. But yeah, some people from... You're going to have to explain to our audience Harold. Oh, now. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Harold is a form that uh, you perform with a, with a team of improvisers, usually like eight people. And then there are, um, I mean, oh, I haven't done a Harold in so long. <laughs> you break it down. There's like three different scenes. Oh, you do an op- opener. Um, where you can like generate ideas. So you hear a suggestion and you do an opening game for the performers to just get ideas for And that could be different forms of like a pattern game, which I never liked, um, but people kept doing it and I kept having to do it because that's what we learned in classes. But where you would say a word and then another word that would relate to it and then another word. And then um, there would be scene painting where you're describing a room so yeah, an opening game for the performers to be on the same page about, okay, these are ideas that we could use in the set, in this whole set. So then there's uh, three scenes after that, and then you do a group game uh, that kind of like resets everything. And the three scenes are separate. They don't relate to each other. They should not anyway. Group game to reset everything. That's like a totally different scene that involves everybody. And usually the... the uh, the three scenes would be with two people. I, I mean, everyone from <laughs> who knows him probably is probably so upset with the way I'm describing this. And then after the group game, you do a couple more scenes. 
that go back to the three scenes that you did initially. So you are um, kind of either seeing this a jump in time, like either this is in, in the past or in the future with the same characters, or you're doing a mapping thing where you're taking the same game, but you have different characters in a different environment. Um, so if it was like the game was like um, you were monkeys in a jungle and you uh, you couldn't figure out how to peel the banana. And you're, and you're so you're trying different ways to eat the banana. The second game that you visit could be um, instead of monkeys, maybe you're astronauts and you can't figure out how, how to open the tang or something. I don't know. And then uh, another group game kind of wipe, wipes clean everything that happened. And then the, the last three beats kind of connect everything. And yeah, that's basically a herald. But like the way UCB does it, I think is a little different than the way IO does it. It's like some people do a looser herald. The way UCB teaches it is very structured. Um, and it's helpful because it does teach you game. Like it teaches you how to be able to come back to the same theme and uh, and like have repetition and patterns. And then it also teaches you, um, you know, how to bring things back, like callbacks and stuff. So it's, it's very helpful. Um, I stopped doing heralds after classes after I didn't have to <laughs> after we, after my 401 class I I started exploring other different forms and the team that I'm I'm currently on two teams I'm on a team at, that performs on Fridays at UCB East whenever and I jump in whenever I can um, and we do a mono scene which is one long scene like a play and uh that's fun for me because it's more like character development and more story. Now, you know how comedians who have been established themselves, they got to the point on the big stage and they'll walk into a comedy club and it's like, oh, Joe, you're going to be bumped. Louis coming in. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the improv, is there ever a situation where somebody just walks in who's a cast member on Mad TV or SNL who was a part of the UCB world or even somebody who's way, way established who probably wouldn't even go on anymore like Amy Poehler Mm -hmm. and they just walk in and they say, you know what, I feel like stepping in tonight. Is that acceptable or is that not acceptable in that world or does it have to be more like, hey, Amy, you're coming in and I know you started this whole thing, but I want you to know what we're doing here and you're going to be a part of this. It would be ideal to have that conversation first to be like, so here's who you're playing with. Ideally, you know them. This is what the form, the form that we do. Um, but some people do drop in. I think years ago, Robin Williams dropped in at UCB, just like played with a group and you know, he had never played or met with those people before, but he just like jumped in and was like, and it didn't matter because everyone's just like excited to see him. <laughs> so it doesn't matter what he does. Even if it's wrong, they're like, whatever. <laughs> um, but that that's pretty rare, though. I haven't heard of too many times where people will jump in and just be like, yeah, put me up. I just want to do whatever. Um, also, because I think a, a lot of performers who have not done improv are terrified of it. So if you're someone who has done it for years, then, yeah, you can probably jump in with any group and be fine. But um, I think it'd be rare for just random performers to to show up and be like, I feel comfortable. (laughs) Put me in. To move up in UCB, everybody talks about the Sunday company. Mm -hmm. And you're working your way through the classes and you're paying the money. 
but you have a goal in mind of I got to get to this top. I got to get to the A team. Yeah. How long did it take you to work your way through the program? And finally, somebody said, you know what? This person's leaving and you are going to step up into this. Maybe I did it pretty fast. Maybe three or four years. Um, also, uh, going back to how I paid for the classes. So I paid for my first two classes. Uh, but then I didn't know if I was able to pay for more. And at the time... You got into another accident to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking for cars. Like, who can hit me? But not too much. Uh, oh, but they had a, they still have a diversity program. And this was in the early stages of it. So there weren't a lot of um, people of color and people of different uh, sexual orientation and... and things that would be that would qualify them for a diversity scholarship around so I got four free classes which is like unheard of now but uh yeah I did an interview with some of the teachers and then with that those scholarships I took two sketch classes and did and then two more improv classes and I'm so glad because I I didn't know I would like writing sketch but then I took the class and I was like oh this is like igniting a new fire in me um and yeah, so then after that, I would audition for the Herald team, which is like, I, I guess, the thing. But then once you get on a Herald team, you want to be on a weekend team. Um, auditioned twice, didn't make it. And then my two friends, Nicole Byer and Keisha Zoller, same thing, auditioned, didn't make it. We formed Doppelganger. Truly exploded immediately. Like, we kind of took over the scene they have this thing called cage match where improv teams compete doppelganger was it ucb or was it outside of their your own theater we were in an independent group like so we were an indie team so you were sort of like the if you don't mind me saying key and peel they were on mad tv and jordan got snl four episodes left on mad tv and david saltzman wouldn't let him out of the contract and he lost SNL and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him and he should have sent David Saltzman a fruit basket because then he formed his own independent thing with Key. Yeah, I guess so. So when UCB and the powers that be see you guys forming your own thing and you're killing it, does anybody ever sit down with you and say, I was wrong? Well, we didn't get I was wrong, but they, they did say, we'll give you your own time slot. So then we became a UCB team. They put our, their name on us and then... But you're working for the man then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we were working for the man. Well, we, we tried doing our own regular show at a theater mm. on our own. And, you know, it's work. And it's so much easier where UCB already has an audience and they can advertise for you. And, you know, the students already take all us. the money. Yeah, but we weren't doing it for the money. Truly, we were doing it for exposure and t because it was fun and we wanted to be somewhere on a regular basis. It's not like it's a podcast or anything. Oh, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we had no problem saying yes to being at UCB, but then it did limit where we could perform outside of UCB. And that part we didn't like because we were like, well, we, were, we weren't formed because of UCB. We were already independent and now we have to play by all these rules um and then one of the members moved to LA and then we kind of just stopped that show anyway because it was usually one of us will have to 
be out for some reason because we were all just getting busier, which was a good thing. But yeah, so that regular show went away. Um, and then I, I, I remember there was a year where I didn't audition for a Herald team because I had doppelganger and I was like, I have my own thing. I don't need to. And I was writing on a sketch team and acting in it. And so I was like, I kind of feel good with these things over here. And I was hosting a variety show. So I was like already very much in the community. And, um, yeah, I was asked to audition for a Herald team and I said, no, cause I was like, I'm good. And then doppelganger stopped having a regular show. And I asked, could I be on a <laughs> Herald team now? Because I, I want to have a regular improv team again and uh, got on the team that I'm on now. And then we moved to the weekend. And I think we, you know, stood out so much is because we, we kind of put a spin on the Herald. We, we did a, like a Laurent Herald, which was wildly complicated. <laughs> when I think about like the stuff that we did for improv, I mean, like we were all nerds about it, but just like being like, how can we <laughs> doctor this and, and change it? But um, yeah, a, a Laurent is where you have two people in a scene and then one person leaves and someone else joins that last person and then you kind of have a new scene. And so we would do that style, but within the con the constraints of a herald. We were just making a lot of work for ourselves, but <laughs> but it was always very fun. And then we would do monoscene heralds. Um, and yeah, and now we're on the weekend and we get to do whatever we want, which is so great. <laughs> so take our audience through a day before you find out that SNL is coming in and what's going through your mind when you're with a group. It's not like a stand-up, Lorne or Marcy or whoever comes to the club. Yeah, there's other comics on, but I'm going on. And again, I'm writing, I am directing, I am starring, I am executive producing. I make decisions what Lorne sees from the moment I go on to the moment I say goodnight. But what it's like as a performer in a sketch improv family where you're being showcased with a bunch of people, but they're intermingling in your stuff and there's a lot of improvisation. Yes, there is the Rolodex of things you have in your mind that you've done before that they don't know that you've done before. But somebody can just come in and just tap you on the shoulder. Okay, you're out. And you're like, what, what do you mean? I'm out. I'm ringing more comedy out of this. What are you tapping me for? I want to give it everything I have. So you're these variables. It's a great feeling. But these variables in my mind, I'd be so anxious because they're like, God, is Joey going to fuck me up on this one? I mean, this is my big break. This guy could come in and try to just chew on the scenery here. And he could do that just to get the job. So how do you navigate and give the kind of performance you need to do and take me through your mindset when you found out and how you found out you were going to audition? Well, uh, there were a few times I, I had a, I guess, audition encounter with the show. So the AD of UCB at the time when Doppelganger was like in its beginning part uh, was Anthony King. And he told one of the producers from SNL, hey, you should come look at these girls because they're very funny and they're here all the time. And so a producer came to see us perform. And uh, I can't remember if we knew beforehand or not. I don't know, but we had a great show. 
because we always have great shows. <laughs> and which people came to those from the show? Lindsay Shookus. So Lindsay was the one who came, not Marcy, not right. Lauren. Right. And she just, you know, stood in the back of the theater, watched us, and then she met us afterwards and said, you know, you guys are great. You guys should submit packets and tapes. And so we made tapes together. So green. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I have access to that tape that I made. It was so... It was, you know, a new person <laughs> trying to do this. Uh, and then we all wrote packets and then dropped them off. And then we got asked to do that the next year. And they had showcases where you do your audition in front of an audience and the producers and Lauren. And uh, did that for that next year and then the next year. And then um, in 2013, I was like, this is the last time I'm going to try. If it doesn't happen this time that's okay with me <laughs> and when you're trying the other times did anybody from the group get the show from those other auditions nicole tested so she did a showcase they called her in to do a screen test at the studio so you're in front of the camera you're in front of lorne the head writers the producers and uh you do your five minutes whatever that is either stand up or sketches or you know however you want to do it and uh, yeah, she felt really good about it. I'm sure I, she's an incredible performer and she's one of my favorites. So I imagine it was great, um, but she didn't get hired. And then the, uh, the end of 2013 is when they had the like search for a black girl <laughs> contest or whatever. And uh, I had made a practice reel to send to my manager to get notes because they usually look for the reels in the summertime. So like, I was like, trying to be on top of it and I was like let's start in the fall and then I'll like workshop this stuff to a point where I feel really good about it and so when they're actually looking for people I'll be ready but normally in the normal pattern of SNL and it's not to say there's ever a normal pattern but they look before July 4th and they take a break and then there's this period where you think they should hire somebody and it just goes into August yeah. and sometimes it goes into September and they'll hire people then and occasionally they will hire people for the January, the last six or seven episodes. I think they do 13 mm -hmm. from September through December, and then they do seven in the back end of the year. Yeah. And so that's what you were gearing for. Yeah. So I'd, I was auditioning in December. And uh, yeah, so the practice reel I sent my manager, he was like, they need this now because they're looking for people. So... He, give, he sends it to them. Maybe that week or the next we do a showcase in front of an audience and uh, Lauren and, and producers. And I left the stage feeling like, yeah, I did it. Like, <laughs> like I felt like that was, I was like so confident that I killed it. And I did because they called me back for another, uh, for the test. And uh, the notes that I got back was, you know, we loved what you did. Just do the same thing. And I was like, no. <laughs> and so um, the night before, it was me and my roommate and, and, and good friend Mateo Lane in our apartment. And we're just rehearsing new stuff. And I'm just like going, you know, for hours trying to figure out how I'm going to change this. And, and I did a mix of stand up and character. So I was like talking as myself, but I was talking about the holidays since we were like in around Christmas time. And then, uh, you know, kind of weaving characters in there. Like, wouldn't it be funny if you were like, you know, having Christmas dinner with Rihanna and Nicki Minaj or whatever the thing was, I can't remember. But yeah, I was like weaving characters within the stand-up and, and I felt like it was a good combination of showing you me, but also what I can do. And 
I felt really good about it afterwards. I felt good about my showcase, but I felt really good about my, my, what I was, what I prepared for my test. And then I would go into the, the studio and we're waiting for hours. Cause that's what you do. <laughs> that's what they make you do. And, uh, I remember Chris Kelly, the stage manager, like, you know, patted me on the back and he was like, you're just, you're just going to look at the camera. Everyone's going to be on the side, which doesn't make sense. But, you know, the audience is to the left of you, but you can't look over there. You have to play to the camera. But if you get nervous or scared or anything, I'm right next to the camera and I'll be smiling the whole time. And that was so comforting and so wonderful. And I got to the stage and he was, he was standing right next to the camera and just like, because they want it, they want you to do well. Everyone wants you to do well and they want you to be the best you can be because they want you to be on the show. Like they want whoever is the best for the show to be on the show. And so they want you to be comfortable and they're not trying to scare you. Oh, I mean, maybe they are trying to scare you, but like as a whole, they want you to to want to be on the show so so chris was like so warm and then there was someone else who was like on the on the sound booth like also like yeah you're ready you're ready to go and i I peeked over to the left for a little bit and seth myers is sitting there and he smiled and i was like okay i think i'll be okay and truly felt like i blacked out like i did it (laughs) but like i don't remember living in that moment i don't remember feeling anything i just i did it but i left the stage feeling like that was the best I've ever done anything. I can't think of one thing I would change. And that was a really nice feeling. And then I went home and was kind of like, it's up to them if they want this. Great. If not, that has nothing to do with me because I gave them the best I can give them. And if they don't want it, that's fine. And this is what's amazing about most tests. I'm going to share with you something that I'm going to bet on that you did the best you've ever done in your life and you wouldn't have changed anything and you walked off the stage and not one person from that side was sitting down came up to you and shook your hand and said nice job yeah isn't that amazing (laughs) yeah no but you know, that's not their thing. <laughs> that's not what they, they do. They, they're not great at letting you know that you're doing a good job. <laughs> um, okay, so you go home. I go home, and it was kind of wacky because I woke up to a bunch of tweets because Lena Dunham had tweeted a sketch that I had written and been in, um, you know, months before. This is crazy funny and a wonderful antidote to today's internet. Was that her tweet? Yeah, so the flasher video that I did, um, that was a joke that I did on stage for a while where I, I tell a story about how I got flashed on the street and then I tell the same story from the perspective of the flasher. And my one of my best friends, Chioke Nasor, before we were friends, he saw me perform this joke. And then we have friends in common and we, we started hanging out and he mentioned the joke and he goes, I would really like to film this and have you act out all the parts. And I was like, all right, sure. And, you know, he got some money from this production company and and we uh, did everything on the cheap. We filmed in my apartment. We filmed on the street outside my apartment. I used all my clothes. Like, it was, like, so cheap, but it looked so good. And it got both of us work from there. Like, you know, Joke, I got more work in comedy and with working with comedians specifically. And I got more work because people started seeing, like, what I could do and what I could write. 
And yeah, so that's the thing where I felt so proud of it. And I was glad it was out in the world. And then Lena Dunham is like, I agree. <laughs> this is great. And then she tweeted that. And I was like, you know what? Even if this SNL thing doesn't happen, <laughs> other people already recognize my talents. And again, I hate to be broken record. Wrote. Starred. Executive produced. Yeah. <laughs> your own thing. Yeah. You weren't working for anybody. No. Total satisfaction. Yeah. I think that is where that is where I feel the most happy when it's like I made this. I created this. I also love being in things where it's like I'm acting in this or, you know, I'm a part of this. But when it's like I am the creator, that's where I, I really feel good. Um, yeah. And then I got the call, I mm. guess, weeks later because this was around the Christmas show. And they were like, we'll let you know before Christmas. They didn't. And they don't have to. <laughs> and I think I got the call January 8th. And Who made the call? I got a Well, I missed the call somehow. I had the phone literally on me <laughs> at all times. And I was like, and just like sick. I like never left the house. I was smelly. I didn't take a shower. I was in pajamas the whole time. And thank God my roommates were feeding me because I was like, I just can't leave. And I got away for this call. And I left the my bedroom for two seconds to go to the kitchen, came back, missed two calls. And I was like, what? How did this happen? Called back and it was one of Lauren's assistants. And I was like, hi, did I, I miss a call? She goes, yes, I'll patch you through. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and it was Lauren and Ken Ward, one of the other producers and Eric Ken Ward. And, uh, and Lauren goes, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's one of those vague things where it was like, did, did you say that I'm hired? <laughs> where he was like, yeah, you know, we think that you would be, you, you would have fun here and that you, it was like a lot of you would or like this could happen. And I was like, am I going to work there? But I was just like, uh-huh, that sounds great. I think, yeah, I'm, I would love that if that happened <laughs> and he's like yep all right well you know uh we'll see we'll see we'll see and then he like hung up and then ken would call me afterwards and was like so just to clarify you are hired <laughs> you will start work next week um and you know we'll send you details and blah 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 and yeah and then i just screamed my head off and then the third person to call me was the publicist because she was like because this was so public uh she was worried that you know press would start calling me to figure out to like get a scoop or something and uh so she was like don't tell anyone if anyone calls you don't say anything we're, we're trying to keep the secret and uh and then the fourth person to call me was cnn <laughs> and uh which like was pretty shady i don't know how they got my number but i i think because i worked with some other news people from another network that they maybe passed it on which i don't really like but they, yeah they were like can we ask you about being on SNL? And I was like, no, the publicist just told me I can't say anything. And she's like, oh, rats. All right. We got you a little too late. <laughs> and um, yeah. And then they broke the news, I think later that day, because they realized they couldn't keep a secret for that long. And you had no manager, no agent, nobody? or I had a manager and I just signed with an agent maybe a month before these auditions even happened. So yeah, I had a, my manager helped me get a, a, an agent and then this started happening and I got hired and I think they were like, yes, <laughs> score. And, uh, yeah. And then I, I, then I was on the show. I look at Lauren as a genius who in the world has ever 
created anything that has gone over 40 years. No individual is bigger than the show. No matter what, there could be a riot and he would figure out a way to produce the show that week. So for you, you get there, you're in the trenches, you're used to the politics at UCB, you're used to the people behind the scenes who shake your hand and hug you, oh God, you're so good, you're so good this week, and then you're used to those people who try to figure out a way to take you down. You're used to that, but you're not used to it on the big, big stage. So when you analyze it, what's your part in what you felt didn't go the way you wanted it to and what's the show's part that's really complicated i think if you even if you asked a couple what went wrong in this relationship there's so many factors and even if you they had answers there's still things that they don't even know and it's like when did you start distrusting each other? When did you start looking at other people? When did you start, like there's so many things and it's like, I don't know, it kind of fell apart. Um, so I could guess, but I kind of stopped thinking about it. There was, there, were, there was a period where I was racking my brain like, well, why, what is it? Is what am I doing? Or what is a show doing? Or like, it would be so much easier to be like, so-and-so hated me. <laughs> or like, you know, um, I didn't get along with this person or, you know, this, I tried to, I kept trying to pitch this, but it never worked. Or like, there was no specific thing that, that made it the way it was. It was, it just was. And, and so I had to figure out if I wanted to stay and figure that out. Or go do what I do best, which is create. And I felt like I wasn't able to do that. So I left. So I was representing Jim Brewer on SNL. And Jim was a guy that was a human highlight film of stand-up. There isn't any comic you could walk up to and say, what do you think of Jim Brewer who would say? He's okay. I mean, it would just be always, oh my God, I can't believe what this guy does on stage and in person and just he's the funniest guy off stage but Jim politically I remember he got a front page article in some paper and he did the interview and he shared about how he had trouble with people writing for him and the people the writers saw the quotes and they were offended by it and slowly his time dwindled and then he decided to do an MTV show because he could do basic cable and he was doing characters on MTV and they were looking at that and Lauren uh, for those of you who don't know your option is normally up around May 30th and then the show has the right to ask you if you will extend a free option another month while they figure things out and then the show can say, at that point, we're going to extend another free option if you'll do that. Will you accept it or not? And they can do that three times during the summer. And it's gut-wrenching because you know they're extending the option because they're looking at other people. They're talking it over. And I remember a night before the last option with Jim Brewer, and I stayed up all night, 
and I wrote this amazing letter that I faxed to Lorne, and I got a call at midnight, and he said, Barry, I've been racking my brain about this. I read your letter, and I just want to tell you the art of the written letter is a dying art, and the fact that you put all this down on paper and you are so passionate about it, it means a lot to me. Obviously, I believed in Jim. I hired him, but I just can't seem to get the other people on the show to be behind him. And even though I'm the guy who people look to, I don't think it's right of me to go against what the majority of people are feeling. And so even though you wrote me this beautiful letter, I'm sorry to say I'm not going to pick up his option. And I've been where you've been with artists as a manager. Look, Jay Moore was on for two years. Again, they extended the option. When they went to extend the third option, Jay said, Barry, tell Lauren I'm not doing it. I'm like, Jay, just believe in yourself. He just needs time. No, Barry, I'm not doing it. I have to bet on myself. I have to believe in myself. And I feel like I don't have the control. I don't have the ability to get on. I can't seem to break through Sandler and Farley and Hardman and Myers and Spade. I just can't. And I remember calling Lauren and Marcy and telling them that one of the worst calls I ever made. And I believe in making calls like that, but... You know, this is a young kid. He's always probably 22. I'm thinking this is... If he doesn't pick up your option, then you can still do what you want to do. But I was wrong, in a way, because the next audition he had was Jerry Maguire. And his life changed forever when he booked that role. So he took control back. How did you have the guts to find the strength to do that and the confidence of knowing that your next thing that you would go into your future would be bright well I think it's a thing about betting on yourself and and like I said before I haven't done anything where I've cut things off without talking about it first so we've had talks where we're trying to make it work and like, I don't understand why this is happening. And I've also gotten the Gilda Renner <laughs> cookie talk and also the, you know, even Gilda who had won an Emmy came back the next week and wasn't even in the show. And, um, yeah. And you know, one thing I'm still really happy about is that Lauren really wanted me to win till the end. It wasn't like, I can't think of a time where he was disappointed in me or just like, you know, he wanted me to do well on that show. There's just so many factors as to why it didn't happen. And I don't even know all the factors and I don't think he would either. Um, but, uh, he did try and I tried, we all tried. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, when I told him I wanted to, to leave, he was a very understanding and, and that was the best case scenario. So, I feel really good about it. And I had thought about it for a very long time. So I guess by the time I did it, I didn't know what the next step was going to be, but I knew it would make me feel better than how I felt then. I was not feeling great for a couple years. So I was like, 
I'd rather go and risk it, not knowing what's going to be on the other side than stay and just tr- grit and bear. Because I could have stayed. Probably could have stayed a full seven years and then just hoped that I would get more stage time year after year. Or I could leave and just see what happens. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I mean, I guess not making my improv group in college propelled me to make my improv group in college (laughs) and not making the Herald team at UCB propelled me to make my own improv group that became very popular and got the attention of SNL. Yeah. Out of rejection comes a reason for me to create my own thing that would probably propel me to the next level. Your greatest holy shit moment in your career. Um, meeting Beyonce. <laughs> Met her at the 40th anniversary and it's still a holy shit moment for me. <laughs> <laughs> Last question. What advice do you have for the young person who's just growing up in a certain existence? Maybe they're experiencing divorce. Maybe they're experiencing a lack of stability. Maybe they don't necessarily have any goals or what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. And for some reason, they find that spark. How do they have the kind of career that you've had? What advice could you give them to take them from the early stages to the big stage where you've been? I would say follow the fun. Whatever you find to be fun, no matter how nerdy it might be or how like silly someone else might think it is, like whatever the thing is, if you love doing it, if you're really passionate about doing it, you do it. It shouldn't matter what other people think. And, you know, hopefully that will guide you to where you're supposed to be. There's no map or like clear path to how anyone gets to any point in their career. The way I got to SNL is way different than the way someone else got to SNL. Um, but you know, if you just keep following the passion and keep following what you believe in and not what other people are telling you what you should believe in, then I think you'll get there. This has been so amazing. I think I'm crying. (laughs) It's just so fantastic. I can't even tell you how important this is for the audience. And I've seen a side of you that I never knew. And I hope the audience sees what I see in you because you are a huge star personally and you are a huge star professionally and i really believe that thank you so much thank you very much thanks for having me awesome as always this is another episode of industry standard with me barry katz if you like the show tell all your friends and if you don't like the show tell all your friends Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. 
He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain 
never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.